Welcome to 153 Great Podcasts, a ministry of 153greatfish.com. A remarkable thing about evolutionary theory is the way it demands that we deny our intuition at almost every step. Evolutionists then assure us that the science is all figured out, so we needn't trouble our silly heads about the relevant biology. In his new book, Douglas Axe of Biologic Institute turns this standard assurance on its head. In Undeniable, How Biology Confirms Our Intuition That Life Is Designed, Harpron 2016, Dr. Axe restores the place of intuition alongside intellect in considering the question of life's origins. About the author Douglas Axe is the director of Biologic Institute. His research uses both experiments and computer simulations to examine the functional and structural constraints on the evolution of proteins and protein systems. After a Caltech PhD he held postdoctoral and research scientist positions at the University of Cambridge, the Cambridge Medical Research Council Centre, and the Bobraham Institute in Cambridge. His work and ideas have been featured in many scientific journals, including the Journal of Molecular Biology, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences and Nature, and in such books as Signature in the Cell and Darwin's Doubt by Stephen Meyer and Life Solution by Simon Conway Morris. After that, I wanted to have something that is not technical, um, something that's universal, something that everyone can latch on to because it's a part of our lives as kind of the key central piece around which to frame this book. And that is what I call the, the design intuition or the universal design intuition. Um, and I'm going to quote to give you an idea of, of what it is. Actually, I had started writing the book when I came across this quote by Alison Gopnik. She's a psychology professor at UC Berkeley, <clears throat> writing in the Wall Street Journal a couple of years ago. And she says, by elementary school age, children start to invoke an ultimate godlike designer to explain the complexity of the world around them, even children brought up as atheists. And I had already started to frame the book, but I read that and I thought, here is, there are studies in psychology showing exactly that this thing is universal, that everyone, even if you're brought up in an atheist home, gets this, at least when you're young. And as you get older, of course, you can have it, you know, beaten out of you, but <laughs> you start off, everyone starts off getting this. Now, she was not she was not approving of this fact. She was stating that fact um, and wondering what we can do to correct it. And so the title of her article was See Jane Evolve, Picture Books Explain Darwin. Gather the kids around. Uncle Charles is here. He's going to tell you a bedtime story. Um, so she was suggesting that we need to educate these kids uh, starting at the age of four or five to correct this awful problem that kids see design when they look at living things whatever their background. Um, so you have this interesting uh, contest or this interesting um, kids pitted against the professors is how I think of it. The kids are saying one thing, the professors are saying another. Um, who's right? Well, <clears throat> if the professors are right, then this is the situation. Uh, almost all of us, if you don't have a PhD in the life sciences, are down here, dependent upon the people in the ivory tower the educated, the people who can see far, far beyond what we can see. And we're down here hoping that they'll cast their pearls of wisdom down and we scramble around, poking each other around, get, grabbing as many pearls and stuffing them in their pockets as we can. But if the kids are right, then the situation looks more like this. 
perhaps the kids are right and the educated people may be a little bit egotistical in their education, have actually dug a hole and they're stuck in it and they can't get out of it. And if that's the situation, it reminds me of a certain <coughs> children's story about an emperor <laughs> where the people who are so obsessed with prestige and what they look like get locked into um, a lie <laughs> and the people who don't care about prestige and don't care about what other people think about them, the children, um, can see very clearly. And I actually argue in the book that, that this is the situation here, that the kids really have won this contest, and it may not be conceded for some time. Um, but the point of the book is to take that message out to as many people as possible, to get as many people to see, hey, yeah, there is something to this. I think, I think the kids understand this one maybe better than the, uh, even the Nobel laureates do. <clears throat> I'll quote a Nobel laureate in, in just a moment. But, so I call it the universal design intuition. You can phrase in different ways. One way that you could say it is, as makers of things, we as makers of things, instantly recognize things that were made. And we know these things can't be made without know-how. That's one way you could say it. In the book, I say it like this. Tasks that we would need knowledge to accomplish can be accomplished only by someone who has that knowledge. They can never just happen things that need knowledge, uh, there's no substitute for knowledge. A uh, simple way to say it, accidents can't do the work of know-how. If something requires know-how, you'll never find that it gets done by accident. It always requires someone who knows how doing it. Okay, this is not complicated. Um, if we all get it, you know, by elementary school age, then it's, then it's not going to be complicated. I take some very simple examples in the book. This is one that's in one of the figures. We all know what this is. It's an origami crane, but I'm saying that just to get this idea of the design intuition, if you imagine a kid who's never seen one of these before and comes across one on a table and doesn't know who made it, nonetheless, they will know that someone made it. They will know that somebody took some time to fold paper in this way, and they'll see that this is something clever. And the reason we see this so early is by the time we're two, we're looking at things and wanting to do them, right? You see brother, sister, you see mother, father do things, you see a friend do something, you want to do that from, you know, easily the age of two or before that. This is the sort of thing that we see and we say, hey, how is that done? Somebody did that. How is that done? Can I do that? Teach me how. And that's how we build this intuition. And if that is something, if the origami crane is something that we look at and we say someone did that, then all the more we will look at the actual thing and say, somebody did that. Now here, you'd be very ambitious if you said, teach me how to do that. <laughs> um, I'll stick with origami, but we have that same intuition, that same spark that says, somebody did this, and it's marvelous. Okay, I told you I'd quote a Nobel laureate. It's going to be Francis Crick, one of the co-discoverers of the double helix. In his book, What Mad Pursuit, he said, biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed but evolved, but rather evolved. So Francis Crick, he's in his 70s when he wrote this. After a full career, a very sterling career uh, in the life sciences, says, keep in mind, you biologists, what you're looking at was not designed, it evolved. So what he's saying here is even he has this intuition. You can suppress it. You can spend your whole life suppressing it, but it doesn't go away. <laughs> you have to keep working on it to keep it pushed down, push it down, push it down. Very interesting thing for him to say. And others, uh, the psychology uh, professor that I quoted, Alison Gopnik, has 
uh, was actually writing on the studies of another psychology professor who has studied this very thing and says, you know, you life scientists, you try to push this down and you need to because it's wrong, but it keeps resurfacing, it keeps cropping up. Why is that? Okay. Well, okay, I said it's an intuition. I said we all had it. So it's a good way for me to frame the book because it's universal. I think it's a good starting point for everyone to be on the same page. But hey, if it's just an intuition, um, do we need to take it seriously or not? I mean, intuition could be nothing more than a hunch. We know that some intuitions are wrong. Uh, just the fact that we all have it doesn't mean that it's true. So why should we take this intuition seriously? Well, a big chunk of the book is making the case that although this is an intuition, it is not just an intuition. It actually has a scientific footing to it. It's reliable. Um, I'm going to walk through, I can't give you the full argument. You'll have to read the book. So I didn't save you the money of the book. Um, but I'll give you just a little snapshot of, of how you can look at this. So here's our intuition when we look at the origami crane. Origami cranes can't happen by accident. Now that's just the intuition. Is there anything beyond that? Well, I think there is. And in fact, I think the way we arrive at that intuition has to do with observation. Um, here's an observation origami cranes don't happen by accident, okay? Now, um, and I, not everyone works at a paper, paper recycling plant, but if you did, if you were responsible for using heavy moving equipment to shovel around massive mounds of paper at a recycling facility, and that's your job and you did that for 40 years, I don't think you would ever see an origami crane unless someone had folded it and it got put in the discard paper you would never see one that was caused by the action of throwing this paper around. You'll get lots of paper getting creased, lots of paper getting torn. You will never get an origami crane. So that's an observation. An observation is a scientific activity, isn't it? It's data. You can say, I've moved paper for my whole life. I've never once seen it turn into an origami crane. Okay? So there's a question, which is a scientific exercise to ask questions like that. No, here's a question. Sorry. An observation is that they don't happen by accident. A question that we can pose after the observation is why don't they happen by accident? Why don't origami cranes happen by accident? And now you see that what was an intuition has an observation underneath it, and you can move from an observation to a question. And maybe the kid who sees the origami crane doesn't go through all this. I'm saying you can go through this. And if you go through this, you find out that this intuition is actually a science thing. It's not just a guess. Why don't origami cranes happen by accident? Well, I think we all have an intuition here. I mean, if you've done origami, sometimes they don't even happen on purpose, let alone on accident. I mean, there's so many steps you have to go through, and they all have to be done right, and they're all quite tricky, okay? And this is even abbreviated. You can see the repeat, the steps, four and five on the other side, you know, so there's, it's quite tricky to get this to happen, and it only forms the crane when you've gone through all these steps and then you pull the thing out and then you kind of flatten the back and it's fun to do but it's tricky and it's because it's tricky we have a, we have an intuitive sense that none of these single steps is likely to happen by accident paper could get creased in that recycling plant but it's probably not going to get creased in the right way but if one crease were to happen in roughly the right way, okay, that could happen. But are you really going to get all of these things happening? That's what makes it seem impossible to us. And so here's our deduction. For an origami crane to happen by accident would be fantastically improbable. And you can look at this a lot more rigorously than we just did here, and the book does. And it turns out to be absolutely correct. It is fantastically 
improbable for something like that to happen by accident. So we have an intuition. We had an observation. We can pose a scientific question. Why are things this way? And we can come to a deduction that's based on probability. Even if you don't do the math, you sense that there's a probabilistic aspect to this. Um, that all sounds very scientific, doesn't it? Um, in the book, I frame it around what I call functional coherence, which I define this way. Functional coherence refers to the hierarchical arrangements, arrangement of parts needed for anything to produce a high-level function, each part contributing in a coordinate, coordinated way to the whole. Now, that's a lot of words, but it's a very familiar idea because virtually everything that we look at and say, wow, that's an invention. Humans made that, and they made it for a purpose. They all have a high-level purpose, and they all have lots and lots of parts, and the parts are not just thrown together willy-nilly. They are crafted in order to perform specific sub-functions in order for all these sub-functions to come together to produce a top-level top function. This is very familiar. It's true of, of nearly everything. Uh, that it's true of everything that we view as, a, as an invention. It's true of the violin. There wouldn't be a part here that's not contributing to the high-level function. There's, there's no blob there that has no function. It's all uh, contributing to the high-level function. It's true of a watch. There aren't very many of these mechanical watches uh, anymore, um, but every piece in here, and there's a lot of them, every piece in here is doing something that is contributing to the top-level function of that watch. And every piece has its precise shape and is made of its precise material in order to have the properties it needs to do its little part for the big top-level function. It's true of your smartphone, and this is by no means a complete listing of the parts of the smartphone. You might notice that part in the upper right is actually very complicated, and you can continue breaking it down. Well, there's something very similar uh, about life, complex life, human life. Apologies to those of you who just ate. Uh, I tried to pick the least objectionable version of this anatomical breaking down of the human body that I could. You see that this same principle applies um, really over, it's overwhelmingly true of living things, isn't it? Because you look at all these major parts that form a human body and they're not even all shown here. The largest organ of the human body is not up here. Anybody know what it is? It's the skin. I think they thought it would look kind of gross if they had a bag of skin there. <laughs> if we zero in on those, see the two eyes there in the upper right over the, over the arm, like, ah, what are we doing out here? Okay, look at, if we look at an eye, we see not only do you have all these parts that compose a body, but you can look at an eye, and there's all kinds of parts in the eye, tissues that are carefully shaped and designed in terms of their cellular structure to perform the many, many functions that need to be, be performed for the globe of the eye to do what the eye has to do in order for us to see. I won't list these, but we can zero in on a piece of the retina. Okay, so now we're looking at one tissue in the eye, which was one part of many, many parts of a body. And you have the famous rod and cone cells inside the tissue of the retina. And you can see the rod, you can see there's a rod, there's a cone, there's a rod. You can see them down in the lower part of that image. Beautiful complexity within a tissue, beautiful structured complexity to the individual cells, and it's not even complete here, um, that form the retina. You go inside the cell, you see the same story. These are not, this is not a picture of a rod or a cone cell, but it's kind of an artistic representation of the innards of a kind of generic animal cell. There isn't really a generic 
animal cell, every single cell has a function. And they're all more complicated than this, but this shows the, the general components that are present in all of these cells. Enormous, fascinating complexity inside the cell. You can go further than this, right? You can zero, you can zoom in all the way down to the molecular level. This is, um, anybody know what this is? It, this is a ribosome. So this is perhaps the most sophisticated molecular machine on the planet. This is the mighty, it's composed of protein components and uh, RNA components. This is the molecular machine that produces protein chains in all the cells, all living cells, the ribosome. Stunning complexity. Again, we could break down the ribosome into its many, many components, each shaped and formed in the right way to come together to form this large uh, molecular structure. Large in terms of molecules, but tiny uh, in terms of in comparison to the whole cell. <clears throat> so what have I done here? We started with this design intuition that we all have. Some of us have tried very hard for much of our lives to say, it's not true, it's not true, it's not true. Don't listen. But we all have it. <clears throat> and what I've shown is even if we don't tease it apart and say, well, what's under this thing? You can tease it apart and you find that these things are under it. Observation is under it. Scientific questions are under it. And deductions as answers to those scientific questions. These are the legs of the stool that are holding that intuition up. And what do observation and question and deduction look like? <clears throat> they look like science. There is science holding this intuition up, okay? Now, I realize that a lot of people will scratch their head and, and say, are you telling me that you can reject all of evolutionary biology based on an intuition? <clears throat> um, yes, but... <laughs> You need to read the book to be convinced of this. I realize that this is, is going to be something that people need to get their head around. I am convinced that this is absolutely true, that the argument that ultimately most clearly and categorically demolishes the Darwinian uh, worldview is not a technical argument. It is a common sense argument, and that is the argument I've put forward in the book. I weave in lots of science snippets but I do it in a way that every non-scientist should be able to understand. I'm not trying to um, wade through complicated things. I show you pictures, basically. Here's what you have when you look inside this. Okay, so I make it very easy for everyone to follow. The technical science shows that design is true, is the true understanding of life, and, and that the accidental view, the Darwinian view, is, is false. Our intuitions say the same thing, and I think it's remarkable that the two agree so well. Now, if you know something about biology or if you have a friend who knows something about uh, evolutionary biology, you're going to get a barrage of questions if you say that this intuition is true. You know, what about this? What about that? What about the fossil evidence? What about the DNA evidence? What about horizontal gene transfer? What about co-option? What about the molecular clock? What about acceptation? What about neo-functionalization? All kinds of questions will get thrown at you, a barrage of them. And probably the one that we should spend a little bit of time on is what about natural selection? I didn't mention natural selection, and that's supposed to be the magic worker. But what I'm saying is if this is true, if accidents can't do the work of know-how, then all you need to ask your friend or yourself is, is this thing that's being proposed as changing the story and rescuing Darwinism, is it an accidental thing, or is it something that has intent in it? Is someone governing this? Is God running this thing? Or is this an accidental uh, fact of physics? And the way 
Evolution is conceived classically all the way back to Darwin is that it's just physics doing what physics does. Natural selection is an accidental cause that operates on populations. It is not thought by current uh, biologists to be anything more than that. Is, there is no purpose being infused into it, no intent. Now, if you want to add those things, then it's a different story. You could create remarkable things if the hand of God is causing mutations and the hand of God is causing, is, is monkeying with it. That's, that's a different story. That's a design hypothesis. But the current standard model for evolution is that there is no purpose. And really, a lot of people who are pushing this say there is no God. And that's why they, they like the theory so well. Um, how can I show you? Who can I quote to give you just a quick um, snapshot of a technical reason what I'm saying is you can ignore all these technical objections if your conviction is that no, this intuition is correct. And you can go back to people and say, if what you're saying is that accidental causes made cranes and humans, then I know you're wrong. And here's why I know you're wrong. And they can keep throwing out the technical things. No, keep bringing it back to the intuition. If you want to, you can dig in to these technical things and show why. No, actually, if you look at this technically in detail, and this is what we've been doing, um, it really can't work. So you can go either way. But in a book, I want to give everyone the way that they can go, which is go with the intuition and the guts to say this has to be true. If you want to go the technical route, you can, and you'll still find <laughs> that the intuition is true. So who can I quote to show what's wrong with natural selection? Well, who better than Richard Dawkins? Okay. <clears throat> this book, actually, I have to say, um, although I disagree quite strongly with Richard Dawkins' position, um, this was an influ influential book for me, and his writing style was so engaging, and he was so convinced that he was right, and that this defense of um, neo-Darwinism would be convincing, that it was a very, con it was a very engaging read. And um, I, I really did, as a graduate student, enjoy reading this book immensely. But this is a book where probably the most um, passionate defender of the Darwinian paradigm has put forward in the best prose possible his defense that natural selection can invent things. And I'm going to quote from it to show you why natural selection cannot invent things. Here is a quote from Dawkins' book. However many ways there may be of being alive, it is certain that there are vastly more ways of being dead, or rather not alive. You may throw cells together at random over and over again for billions of years, and not once... Will you get a conglomeration that flies or swims or burrows or runs or does anything even badly that could remotely be construed as working to keep itself alive? Quote of Richard Dawkins. Now, this is in his first chapter, which is titled Explaining the Very Improbable. And he sets up a problem in order, he thinks, to solve it. And the problem he sets up is these things are extraordinarily uh, improbable in one sense, but there's one key word in here that he thinks by correcting it, he solves this problem. And the key, anybody know what the key word is? It's random. And by saying that natural selection is not random, he thinks, and he spends the whole book trying to convince the reader that because natural selection is not random, this huge probabilistic hurdle that he's just acknowledged is somehow solved. And <clears throat> does anybody see a problem with that. <laughs> it seems to me that natural selection only kicks in once something does work. 
to keep itself alive. And if that's the case, then this huge problem that he's acknowledged is not solved by natural selection. Categorically can't be solved by natural selection. That is a huge problem. And I can't believe actually that someone of his intelligence has not grasped that. <laughs> because I'm sure this has been put to him in many different forms for decades and decades. Um, but he persists and others persist in, in thinking that simply because natural selection is not random and it's true, it's not random, it's the more fit things that tend to overtake a population. But hey, they don't become more fit until this problem has already been solved. And that's the problem with natural selection. I am going to stop there and leave you with a pretty picture of a crane <clears throat> and entertain any questions. So what we would like to do now is to entertain your questions for Dr. Axe, and we have two microphones. You need to actually come down here. You can't just stand up in the middle there. You need to come down on one of the sides to ask a question. And if there's too large a line, you'll sort of have to go down that direction or else the fire marshals will get us in uh, trouble. But uh, if there's just a few of you at a time, then you can just be there. So come on down. See someone coming down. And if you don't have questions, then I'm going to ask questions and show how little I know about some of the science. But I'm one of the sorts of people that Doug wrote the book for who is not a scientist. So Absolutely. maybe. Okay. So let's start on this side. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I have a few close friends that are uh, passionate atheists or agnostic. What, uh, what percentage uh, of an argument do you think is enough to, to convince someone um, whether it be technical or, or the intuition route um, versus sort of the, the way they were brought up or, or a psychological um, need to be right in, the, in their own belief. Like even if you were able to, to talk about the, the intuition intelligently and even lay out the technical arguments, um, they, my thought is they, they still might cling to their beliefs for other reasons. Uh, no, they will, yeah. <laughs> You're absolutely right. <laughs> Humans are very complex, and our beliefs, uh, the, and the way we come to beliefs and the way we cling to them is a very complex thing. And I'm not, I'm not for a moment claiming that give your atheist friend my book and they will, you know, be on their knees praying at the, at the end of it. I think <clears throat> what, it will, what I hope it will do is cause the more thoughtful, there are atheists, and I interact in particular with Thomas Nagel, who strikes me as an extremely thoughtful atheist, he's written a book called Mind and Cosmos, Why the Materialist Neo-Darwinian Conception of Nature is Almost Certainly False. False. This is an atheist. Very gutsy, very astute thinker, uh, and I really would like to meet him. I've interacted with him a little bit. Um, I think there are atheists who come to the point where they really want to know what's true, I, I, and I'm not, I'm not bashing them on that front at all, because I think there are a lot of people in all walks, people in, of faith, people who are agnostic, people who are atheists, we all tend to cling to what we have and not really want it to be upset. That's a human thing, not an atheist thing. <laughs> Everyone is that way. Um, if you can get someone to the point where they really value the truth over what they're holding on to, then I think it opens the possibility for dialogue. So that's what I'm hoping to have helped with. But very good question. Thank you. Well, move to this side. Thank you, Dr. Axe, for your presentation. 
Um, so you didn't mention the word theism, I think, at all. You mentioned the word God a few times, and right. I know that that's not where you intended to go. But my question is, so what happens when in theism violates a lot of our intuitions? So if you use intuition to kind of uh, to undo Darwin, which I think is fantastic, I think that's a great strategy. But what happens when someone says, okay, fine, Darwin's not correct, let me entertain uh, intelligent design, let me entertain theism, let me entertain Christianity, and then all of a sudden there's there's a lot of baggage that really runs against our intuitions, like the Trinity, you know, miracles, the incarnation, a lot of stuff that's quite central um, to Christianity. That's very good point. Or did you have more? No, that's it. Um, so I, this is not a blanket endorsement of intuition because intuitions can be right and they can be wrong. I'm not in this book trying to say that all intuitions are correct. I'm picking out this particular intuition and giving it special attention because in this particular case, I believe you can do the work to show that it really does have a solid basis. That's not going to be true of all intuitions. So that, that's what I say. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that every intuition is correct. And I, and I think you're absolutely right that the truth can be counterintuitive at times. And I'm not denying that either. I'm saying here's a case where the truth and the intuition marry up very nicely. And I think it's also a case where the intuition gets bashed because there's so many people who want it to be wrong, okay? So, good point. On this side. Does intelligent design negate the concept of a common ancestry? Um, no, so for people who don't think about evolution, one of Darwin's, Darwin gave us two things really, the big things. One was the tree of life. You may have seen one of the uh, pictures from his book, 1859, this tree that starts from some original life form and it branches out into all the modern life forms. And the other thing was natural selection is the cause for the tree of life. And um, so you could call, you can separate these as two different hypotheses. One is that all life descends from some original life form and the other is that natural selection was the cause for all the different forms that did descend from that original life form. Uh, the answer is no. One could hold to intelligent design and also hold to the uh, hypothesis that all life is related. So you can separate those. And, and I, I think I alluded to this, that um, accident cannot invent things. That's a, a key point of my book. So accidental causes could not have taken some original bacterial species and pushed it into all of these things. If you want to think, or you want to propose that God took that original species and walked it into all these forms of life, that's that's at least plausible scientifically. I would have no way to object to that scientifically. Whether that causes problems doctrinally, that's something you have to look at in a, in a different way. But it's certainly nothing that I've proposed would say that that couldn't be true. So on this side, if I can see through the lights, I think it's Discovery Institute senior fellow Paul Nelson, who is one be. of the founding fellows of the Center for Science and Culture. Who has not read this book yet. I just bought my copy. <laughs> but I'm curious, if you argue that uh, the design intuition is universally reliable, and I agree with you. Might you further go on to argue that, in fact, humans are built to detect design? And I wondered if you could comment on that. Do you think a case could be made that we have been given design-detecting cognitive apparatus that's, that is reliable? Um, no, and that we have to fight to suppress it. Yes, I think, um, I think we all have it. Um, if you say, here's where I might disagree, but I, but I may not. I don't, in the end, think it's all that special. Once we're in the category of, 
of beings who create ourselves, who not create ourselves, but we ourselves create things. We are makers, we are inventors. It is really a snap to look at something. I mean, you can lay these things out. A pile of sand, no. A clock, yes. I mean, it's not hard at all. So in a way, I don't think it's all that special. I think that it is opposed and vilified <laughs> because people don't like where it goes. So I, I think it's a snap for people who do this because we, by age two, as I said, we're already thinking this way. We're already thinking, I want to do things that are clever and I can spot the things that are clever and those are the things I want to do. So I think it works that way. Okay, on this side. I, uh, you said when you were, can, I don't know if you can hear me. You said that uh, biologists or the you're really standing in a really uh, a minority position, even though you feel really sound that you're correct in that position. But in America or globally speaking, that you're like against this huge pushback that says that you're wrong. And what I wonder when I hear that is, is in people that I know in the world that I'm in, they'll invoke that on me. They're like, you know, 99 or 98% of scientists actually refute what he is saying. Is it that, I'm getting to a question here. I'm trying to pose it in front of <laughs> I wonder is, is that, is it because your science or your argument is from probability and that arguments from probability maybe aren't necessarily sound arguments to argue from? You, know, you, can, have, you can have extremely sound arguments from probability. Then uh, why is there such a tremendous pushback, an overwhelming pushback, if that's the case? I would, well, read the book because a, a good chunk <laughs> I, of the book. No, I don't want you to give it away. I just, I know that I, I deal with tons of people that would just, they come at me with everything that you were showing, all these different reasons. And, and I have to believe that these are honest men and women that do science with passion and zeal that are intelligent well, people. What, what I think is, I don't think people have made this argument. I think this is a new way of framing the argument, basing it on an intuition. Okay, so there's complicated but very human reasons why the entire academy can be locked on an idea and they can defend that idea and they can punish people who speak out against the idea and they can vilify people who speak out against and they can ostracize people who speak out against the idea. And there are examples of this given in the book. It's a very human thing. Um, so I, it's not hard to understand why you can have, uh, go back to the emperor's new clothes, you can have unanimity among the good and the great, because they want to be the good and the great, <laughs> they all uphold the ideas that are associated with the good and the great, and they despise the ideas that challenge that. And I think that ends up being a very plausible sociological e explanation for why the majority could uh, oppose the view that I'm espousing. Having said that, I'm not sure that the majority is that strong, because you can have conversations, as long as no one has a microphone and no one has a camera on them, a lot of biologists are willing to say, yeah, that's credible, but they will not put their name to it and they'll be very intimidated if a microphone or a camera comes by. So um, I don't know what the percentage is. It could be, this could be one of those situations where a very vocal, very militant minority is able to uh, enforce an orthodoxy and sort of use scare tactics to keep a majority in fear of being punished by a minority. And that happens in human culture, and this could be one of those situations. But it's a very good question. Okay, on this side. Here we go. Um, you graduated from Berkeley with an engineering degree. Correct. What was your intuition on this topic at that point in your life? Well, that's a really good uh, question. Um, I, uh, I became 
a Christian at age 14, which wasn't that long. It was four years before I was at, at Berkeley. And I can even think back pre that. So there wasn't a faith connection. I was always skeptical of the Darwinian story, even before I can say that faith was connected to my skepticism. Um, to be honest, at Berkeley, I didn't think that much about it. I started thinking about it when I was touching on the life sciences and I was doing chemical engineering and physical sciences at Berkeley. But I did think about, interestingly, the mind-body problem at Berkeley. So I started thinking as an undergraduate that there's a contradiction between the materialist view of, of mechanism, that everything is atoms and molecules in motion. And I saw a contradiction between that and human consciousness and free will. And I started writing, you know, things. I didn't publish them. <laughs> I couldn't. But I started writing things about that problem. And I talk about that a little bit in the book and come back to that. Because that's really Nagel's. Nagel is an atheist who recognizes that a material universe cannot produce consciousness and the mental functions that we have or the moral sense that we have. He's an atheist who argues that those things are real and they're not explained by atoms and molecules in motion. Doug, thanks for your talk and for the book. You're welcome. You know, the, the word science is used a lot in our culture and it usually has a capital S, especially when it's in writing. And I think what you've hit on tonight, and I, I want to ask you to amplify on it maybe, is um, this intuition, the stool illustration. I think what you're saying is that, the, that a two-year-old is doing science remarkably. What is science? Well, it's the art of observation, conclusions, reproducibilities in there, hypothesis, and that a two-year-old can look around the world and see compl complex things and realize somebody made them. That's science. That's absolutely science. In the book, I say we're all scientists, and I call it common science to distinguish it from technical science. We all do this. The two-year-old will have made models in his or her head of gravity, of how the ball bounces, of all kinds of things. The two-year-old will have categorized, the one-year-old will have categorized things into categories. The one-year-old knows a cat even before the one-year-old can say cat, but the one-year-old knows all kinds of things that are cats and can distinguish cats from dogs. Even before they have the terms cat and dog to use, to apply to those categories. All of this is model, uh, model building. It's all innate scientific reasoning, and we all have it. So I do argue that in the book. That's powerful. Thank yeah. you. Um, I've been an engineer for 30 years, and I realize as an engineer that part of the human ability to have intuition can be built up and used. Uh, I've built up skills in, in my intuition, in my logic, and in my imagination that have allowed me to design objects. And so I'm wondering if scientists, many scientists, are ignoring that skill in the human being to argue against those, those very uh, appearances in, in, in science and in biology and life itself. Do you think they're just totally ignoring it? or? Well, and intuition is a huge and somewhat vague category, right? So even as I was talking about intuition in the book, I'm basically saying it's intuition, or we call it intuition, but it's got observation under it, so you could call it science, but it could be a deduction. Um, I think we have these faculties, and um, we have this ability as thinkers to jump to things without having to do the calculation, okay? And so that's one of the things that we commonly think of as uh, intuition, that we can look at something and 
to do something without having to go through at least a conscious process where we say, here's how I know this. Here's how I know that house is on fire. Here's how I know. Um, We instantly know these things and we jump to them immediately. And I think uh, creativity is filled with this, that we don't create by, um, well, the Darwinian mode of creating is trying all possibilities and finding the ones that are excellent. That just doesn't work. (laughs) And nobody creates that way. Instead, they have these like uh, moments of inspiration where they just know what's right and they jump to it right away. And they may not be able to tell you how they got there. It just came right away. So intuition is clearly a part of how we operate and it's there's subtlety to intuition insight intuition um and i'm not i don't try in the book to define these categories because they are somewhat loose and i'm very careful about how i deal with intuition i don't stake a lot of the i don't stake anything on my notion of intuition i say here it is we all do this and then i spend a lot of time in the book showing this is correct this one thing that we all know from an early age, it's correct. And you can try to push it down as long as you want. You'll never fully push it down. You'll be like Francis Crick, having to keep pushing it down because it keeps coming back up because it's so obvious. So yeah, I, um, someone, I, I think people probably, when they see this book and they don't read it, one of the critiques will be, ah, oh, he's just talking about intuition. That's not science. And so people will want to um, not give intuition due credit. Again, I'm not saying that all tu- intuition is valid. I'm not trying to endorse uh, intuition over science. What I'm trying to say is some intuitions really do have scientific um, validity and nature to them, and this is one. So, good point. But if they dismissed your book as not science, that means they really haven't read it because you, in fact, have that's a number of chapters that go into quite detail that, the research that you've done. So Yes, that's true. Yes. Thanks for the book, Doug. I was wondering if you'd just talk for a little bit about dysteleology. So um, it's, a, it's a deep intuition if I run across a guillotine and say, that clearly was designed, but I, I don't think I want to run into the designer. Uh, <laughs> well, you don't want to run into the guillotine. <laughs> <laughs> That's well said. Um, I actually take that on a okay. little. I don't know if you flipped through the book. I've just started it. Yesterday. I don't use the term because I'm trying to use ordinary English, so I don't use the term distilliology, but distilliology refers to, to things that <clears throat> look like um, bad design or wrong design or even uh, evil, evil design. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I don't use the term, but I take on uh, the bad design argument. The panda's thumb is in there. There's a figure with the panda's thumb. Um, <clears throat> And the way, I won't give away exactly how I, I deal with it, but um, I think once you get people to recognize that the design intuition is correct, there can be a lot of dialogue over, okay, what does that mean about this? Or, you know, uh, what about piranhas? What about uh, viruses? What about cancer? What about all kinds of things that exist and are real and are complicated and complex <coughs> and horrific? <laughs> uh, and I acknowledge in the book... Um, um, that those things are there. So I've not ignored that, and I've not tried to gloss over that. I haven't tried to fully solve it, but I've given some insight. So um, read the book. Okay. You might have my contact. Yeah. You probably have my contact. Here. So read the book and tell me if you think okay. it resonates. Okay. Um, it, for people that embrace your argument like a Nagel, how, resp- how do they deal with that change of perspective 
and what, how would you like them to deal with it? Like, what benefit do you think your arguments will have for individuals in society? Okay, um, <clears throat> uh, based on, upon my reading of Nagel, let me get a drink first. <clears throat> I, I think Nagel would walk uh, with me in the book uh, all the way through to, um, <clears throat> certainly through to chapter 10 <clears throat> and 11. Um, he would accept that um, accidental causes cannot have produced human beings. He would accept that, and he says, that material causes cannot explain consciousness, cognition, or moral sense. And he says all those things, those things are as real as atoms and molecules, as matter and energy, and they need to be at the heart of a proper conception of nature. Where we differ is he wants there to be a conception of nature that is not materialistic. So a conception of nature that includes purpose and, <clears throat> and mind, but doesn't have God in the picture and doesn't have any, any external deity who's infusing these things in nature, but instead they're resident within nature. Um, so maybe this touches on kind of the Berkeley thing. I mean, it, um, he's a very careful th thinker. He's also extremely candid and honest about his desire for there not to be a God. And in, in another book, Not Minded Cosmos, do you remember his, the prior book? Uh, the Last Word. Thank you. He says something, I'll, I'll be paraphrasing. He, he says, um, it's not just that I think there isn't a God, it's that I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. And he calls that a cosmic authority problem. And I... <laughs> I think it's wonderful that he is candid and honest saying, I get to this position because this is where I want to be. Help me out here. Help me think of a way to explain this without appealing to God because I don't want this to be a, a, a universe that was made by God and comes under God. That's so much more refreshingly honest than an atheist who says, hey, if you do science, and if you read scientific books, you're going to become an atheist. And science compels you to become an atheist. That is total bunk. <laughs> that is complete bunk. Um, so where, where Nagel and I diverge is he wants there to be a version of nature that can make us and doesn't need any help from God. And <clears throat> I say, no, that doesn't make sense. There has to be... I end up arguing in the book not just for the existence of God, but for the existence of a personal God, okay? And that's where I diverge from Nagel. And I, Nagel has read uh, at least parts of it, and I hope Nagel will read the whole thing. <laughs> and I hope to dialogue with Nagel over it. Okay. We're winding down the last couple of questions because uh, you need to have time to be able to buy the book and get it signed. But for at least... Two more questions. Let's see how many of the existing people who are in line that we can get to. So, um, over here. Thank you. Well, as a fellow scientist, uh, I do appreciate you uh, put time and energy to write this wonderful book. Uh, I like this design and the color <laughs> and the title. <laughs> the title says Undeniable. I'm not from uh, Berkeley, and, but I would have to say uh, I'm from Harvard and Oxford, just opposite where you were. Uh, but let me just ask uh, just one, one simple question, and uh, I would uh, appreciate that. Uh, what is undeniable in a uh, few words or one sentence, just like that? Um, 
So are you asking what is it that I am claiming is undeniable? <coughs> well, it's this intuition, I think. It's this intuition that we can try to suppress and we never fully get rid of it. It's, it's, what, it's what Crick wanted us to deny. We, when we look at the things of life, we have to keep telling ourselves they're not designed, but rather evolved. He, he was acknowledging that he can't get rid of the notion that, no, they're designed. Push it down, push it down. So that's what ends up being undeniable. Yep. The, that intuition, that particular intuition, the design intuition. Okay. Other intuitions, again, may be very deniable. They may be very false. But that particular intuition is universal, and we don't end up erasing it, and we shouldn't because it's true. Okay. Okay. Yeah, my question gets uh, kind of right at that, actually. Um, you know, if our, if our intuition is reasonable, rational, and we all have it when we're two years old. Are we not just all suffering under some common delusion? And if you admit that there is this intellectual process that is, I think you're saying it's authoritative, simplify the argument. Okay, it's reasonable, ras rational, it's not in our, we should have that intuition, we should draw those conclusions, at least on an on a in intu intuitive level. Make that jump, right? So it's intuitive, it's a reasonable and rational, Therefore, it supports the, the, the premise, I guess, is, is your point. Um, you could just chuck the intuition and say, I don't have that. <clears throat> I don't know anyone who has that. You could read the book, and it will show you that Darwinism is wrong, okay? <laughs> I like how the premise of the book is that it's our common intuition that tells us that things must be created because... It's interesting to see how the scientists who control the academy all say that, you know, evolution is the only answer. But they're so frustrated with the people in this country, and poll after poll show that a large majority of people believe in that the world was created right. and not evolved. And they're so frustrated, and they get so angry, and it's interesting to see how evolutionists respond with such vitriol and such emotion to you know, my, whether it be Meyer's book or I'm sure your book, it'll be coming. Um, oh, and and they, don't, they don't respond intellectually. They don't respond um, with thought-out arguments uh, and scientific arguments against these in ID, um, ideas, but they respond emotionally. Right. So I'm, I'm glad that you are writing toward the average person, because the average person can see it. The evolutionist is actually quite um, non-intellectual about it. Well, and I want to be careful about, I don't want to put everyone in simplified buckets. I mean, there are, there are very thoughtful people who are evolutionists, and there are people who dialogue over this in a thoughtful, careful way. Um, <clears throat> but there certainly are the shrill people who want to say that if you're not, in fact, they do say that you're an idiot if you, <laughs> if you, don't, if you don't believe it. Um, and I don't know, if you know anything about humans, um, you know that when we get desperate, we resort to desperate measures. And if we have a much better approach than bashing people as idiots, we use it. We, so it maybe, maybe it tells you that there's desperation there. I think that would be my interpretation, but good point. Last question. Make it a good one. Uh, I don't mean this as a challenge because I'm completely in agreement with your thesis and your approach. But um, the question is, what is your position on junk DNA? That has a lot of implications for the design argument. 
Well, um, <clears throat> I won't claim to be an expert on junk DNA because I've, I've worked with prokaryotic organisms, so um, not with complex genomes, but with simple genomes. <clears throat> but I believe junk DNA is one of those things. So let me tell people what junk DNA, <laughs> about the whole idea. Um, uh, complex organisms, so multicellular large organisms, us, cats, dogs, corn, have large, <laughs> what? Corn is complex, okay? <laughs> I'm saying as opposed to bacteria, okay? Everything but bacteria have these large genomes with chromosomes that have a lot of DNA, okay? And if you back up, <clears throat> I don't know how far back you'd have to go now, 10 years ago, if you go back to the, the dawn of the genomic era when um, we were spending a lot of money to get the, the human genome sequenced, um, the idea was that the important parts of our chromosomes are precisely the parts that encode proteins, okay? And if a part of the chromosome is found not to encode proteins or apparently doesn't encode proteins, then as far as we knew back then, it wasn't doing anything because we couldn't think of anything else that DNA was doing. Well, <coughs> post-genomic era, now that we have the full genome, you get the genome and it turns out, I don't remember what the percentage is, it's only like 4% or what's the percent that's coding? It's, it's small. Something like 4% of the human genome is thought or was thought to encode proteins. And so people could say 96 or 97 or whatever the, the percentage was. 97% of this is junk. Now, I think people were careful about this when they were trying to raise trillions of dollars to sequence the genome because people might say, why are you sequencing so much junk? So you got some people who are saying, well, maybe we're being a little bit rash about this. Maybe there are functions that we don't know about. And then in the post-genomic era, there's been a huge project called ENCODE that looks at which parts of, the, of the, our chromosomes are actually active, okay? RNA is being produced from them. And it turns out th that the majority is not just the 4%. It's a ton of our DNA is being, is active in that sense. And that argues that what we were calling, what many people were calling junk early on, turns out not to be junk. And this is, this is new active research right now. People are trying to figure out what is happening. But it's clear that what was labeled as junk a long time ago is no longer junk. And there's still some debate over it, but most people have realized this is not junk. Now, it's interesting that <clears throat> there's a view of biology that sort of catered to the junk idea, and there's a view of biology that never would have gone the junk route. And this even traces back. There were people who denied the junk of people from the ID camp said this couldn't be junk. It couldn't be true that 97% of our genomes are junk. This has to be complex. It has to be doing something. Um, you can see that from the Darwinian uh, perspective, if you think that our DNA was just cobbled together by accidental uh, mutations and winnowed by selection, it fits with that view that a lot of this would, would just be experimental wasteland where nothing came out of it. Maybe someday something will, but right now it doesn't do anything. And so that pushed biologists, I think, into the junk DNA hypothesis um, falsely. It's, it's a case where a wrong paradigm, a false paradigm, um, has assumptions baked into it that lead people down one path that turns out to be the wrong path. And here's, it's a very, uh, it's, it's a stellar example of where the paradigm uh, pushes the science in one direction, and in this case, that turned out to be the wrong direction. Now, people aren't conceding intelligent design, even though they're seeing that junk DNA was 
was the wrong way to view DNA, uh, but they probably should. And the longer we pursue biology under the wrong paradigm, the more of these mistakes we're making. You've been listening to 153greatpodcast.com, a ministry of 153greatfish.com. Please subscribe, and better yet, help us by contributing. God bless you. Thank you.